Okay, so this week's Parsha is Vayigash. And let's just figure out where we are in the story of Genesis. Joseph was a slave in Egypt for about a decade or so. And then overnight, this last week's Parsha, he became the second in command. And he he devised this elaborate plan to save Egypt from the pending starvation, the pending famine that was going to happen in seven years. He spent seven years organizing and, and stockpiling all the grain to prepare for the seven years of famine. And indeed, that's what happened. And the Parsha tells the whole story, the saga of Joseph's brothers coming from Canaan, from Israel, to go and collect and buy. Like the whole world is converging on Egypt to buy grain from Joseph. And Joseph sees these 10 towering brothers walking in and he realizes that his brothers are here and they're coming to pay their respects to him and they don't recognize him. And this is indeed the fulfillment of his dreams that he had that his, that his brothers are going to come bow down to him. And he starts playing games with them. And he starts telling him, he accuses them of being spies and he puts them in jail and then he sends them out and, and gives, puts their money back in their, in their pouches and he's constantly playing games with them. And then he says, okay, bring me your other brother and he takes one of the brothers as, as, as a hostage. He's, he's manipulating them. It's all interesting back and forth cat and mouse game, uh, with, with Joseph and his brothers. And the Parsha ends, last week's Parsha ends, where Benjamin, who's the youngest brother, who Jacob didn't want to send the first time. He was too protective over him. Jacob eventually accedes to sending Benjamin, and then Joseph slips his goblet into Benjamin's pouch, and then he arrests Benjamin, and everyone's freaking out because Jacob lost one son, Joseph. If he loses the other son from Rachel, he's going to be totally inconsolable. And that's how our parsha begins, where this, there's this standoff between Joseph and his new prisoner, his new hostage, Benjamin, and the rest of the brothers. But long story short, eventually, Joseph tells him, I'm actually Joseph, and you sold me to Egypt, and everyone is, you know, they, they, it suddenly hits the brothers like a ton of bricks that, oh, this is really happening. We actually bow down in the dream. The dream actually came true, and like 15 years of history suddenly just falls into place. And eventually, they say, he tells them, okay, go back to Jacob and bring him down here to me. And Jacob can't believe initially that Joseph's still alive. But eventually he recognizes that it's true. And he comes down. He's very old at the time. He's over 100 years old. And he comes down to visit Joseph. And Joseph's been missing now for many, many years. And they're going to have this reunion. I think it's about 20 years or so uh, since, since Jacob and Joseph last met. Since Joseph was kidnapped and uh, and sold as a slave by his own brothers. And now he's alive. He's a king in Egypt. And Jacob's coming down to visit him. And the Torah describes this momentous reunion. It says that Jacob is traveling with his whole family in a bunch of carts and a bunch of wagons. And Joseph's coming out to greet them. And they meet. And Joseph is very emotional. And he's crying. And he's hugging his father. But the Torah is very clear that it's only Joseph who's being emotional and hugging his father, but not Jacob. Jacob is stoic. And everyone's trying to figure out why is Jacob, you know, his whole life came crashing down once Joseph was plucked away from him. And now he finally gets the opportunity to meet Joseph again. He sees Joseph in front of him and he doesn't react. And 
all the commentary trying to figure out what's going on. So the Talmud addresses this, and it says something very surprising. It says that Joseph, he was emotional, he was crying, and he was hugging his father, he was kissing him. That was Joseph. Jacob, he was reciting the Shema. He was saying the prayer that we say twice a day, the prayer which is a quote from the book of Deuteronomy, six-word prayer, Shema Yisrael, Hashem, Elkeinu, Hashem, Echad. He was saying the Shema. All the commentators are trying to figure out what is going on over here. Joseph is not saying the Shema. Now, we know that there's designated times where you're supposed to say the Shema, the morning and at night. And we also know that the forefathers, they had a sense of the future Torah. They had a prophetic insight into the Torah, into observance of Torah. So it's not a stretch to say is that Jacob and his children and Abraham and Isaac, they had they taught their children to say the Shema in the morning and at night. We also know that Joseph was not corrupted. Despite, despite being a king, being a viceroy of Egypt, he wasn't corrupted. So if Jacob was saying the Shema, Joseph, if it was the appropriate time to say the Shema, Jacob is saying it, that made sense, and Joseph should be saying it too. That also, but somehow there is a imbalance here. Jacob is saying it, Joseph is not. And that's the question that, that all the commentators are trying to figure out. So, for example, the Maharal, he says that, this is teaching us another lesson, that whenever someone has joy and overwhelming excitement and emotional overflow, it's important for them to direct that love to God. It's an interesting idea. When we have good things that happen to us, we have positive tidings, when we have joy on a very high level, what Jacob is teaching us is that you have to try to way, find a way to direct that appreciation and gratitude to God. For the past 20 or so years, Jacob is lamenting and bemoaning and bewailing the fact that Joseph is missing and he doesn't seem like he's gone. He's not dead. He's alive, but he's gone for all practical purposes. And now, overnight, he's told that Joseph is alive. He's a king. He's doing great. He's healthy. He's fine. And then, Jacob actually gets to see him. And he sees them and it suddenly hits him. Wow, what joy. Just the, the, to think about the, the reunion, the emotional reunion of a father and a child after so many years of separation. He has now energy and passion and power that he can choose to absorb or he can choose to direct and to channel. And what Jacob's teaching us, says the Maharal, one of the great commentators on Torah, what he's teaching us a lesson is that when we have joy in our lives, we follow Jacob's model. Jacob teaches us what, 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 what are you supposed to do? You're supposed to find a way to harness that power to deepen your relationship with God. And when you have good things, you say, Baruch Hashem, thank God. And, 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 and he's teaching us to familiarize ourselves with this idea to try to find ways, opportunities in our lives to deepen and nourish our bond with our creator. Interesting idea. I want to share with you a different idea that I heard from my grandfather. I'm going to give you a little, a little introduction. The Midrash tells us that there is a chariot of God. What does that mean, a chariot of God? Obviously, it's not some sort of godly mode of transportation, certainly. But it says further, the chariot of God is Abram, Isaac, and Jacob. If you just read that simply, we don't know what that means. But the sources tell us what this means is, is that a king has a chariot. A president has a big reinforced uh, Cadillac. And what is emblematic or endemic to a king's chariot is the fact that it's always, 
it's always ready. The king doesn't need to say, okay, we're going somewhere. Let's go to the gas station and fill up gas. It's always filled. It's always ready to go. That, it always has to be ready to go. That's that's what the king of the middle of the night wants ice cream. The chariot has to be ready. That's the driver ready to go at all times. Similarly, when we say that Abram, Isaac, and Jacob, they are the chariot of God, what that means is they're always ready for prophecy. They're always ready for communion, so to speak, with God. If you think about it, like if I, if I told you the president's coming to your house in five minutes or he's coming now, you'd be like, wait, uh. well, of course, regardless of political whatever, let's put that aside. But someone really important is coming. Wait, let me straighten things out. Let me prepare. Let me – right? Let's, let's, let, let's sweep the floor. Let's do something. Let, let, let's get ready. You know, if I told you you had prophecy, you're, you're going to have prophecy right now. You, wait, wait, slow down. I got to clear out all the other thoughts. I got to prepare. That's what you. That, that's what we would do. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were always ready for the president's for the king's visit. They were always ready. They're always primed and ready for prophecy. If God wants to talk to them at any time, they don't need to be forewarned about it. They don't need to be given some headway, some 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 time to prepare. They're always ready. That's what it means. Now, what do you need to do to get prophecy, or what do you need to do to be ready for prophecy? Prophecy, after all, is just on a very simple, basic level, it's communication between God and human. And what part of human? The human soul. So what that means is, is that if there's anything that's separating the human and God, that is something that needs to be cleared away for prophecy. So suppose a regular prophet, not Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, a regular prophet, Ezekiel, he would need to have some preparation time. He's not, he's not part of the chariot of God. He needs to prepare for God because anything that's, that, that's any barrier between these, the human and the creator, that is a inhibition to prophecy. And thus, if there's anything at all that's present at the time that could possibly disrupt the prophecy that has to be actively removed before prophecy can, uh, can endure. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they're, they're, they're different. They always are ready for prophecy. Now, what does that mean? What does it mean to be always ready for prophecy? It means that there's never anything there that could possibly make someone lose consciousness or focusness or readiness for the relationship with God. Anything. Now, we know, of course, a parent and a child have a very special relationship. And there's... Certainly, that's a very positive thing. And Jacob, you know, we know that he had a very close relationship with his children and certainly Joseph. However, there is a realm of a parent's relationship with a child that is just a normal, natural, innate love that parents have for their children. And what what Jacob realized, he's going to have a revisitation, a reunion with with his son. And when he has a reunion with his son, it's going to be a overwhelming emotional experience. And the innate fatherly love is going to have an outpouring. And he's worried that maybe there's going to be a realm of that love or aspect of that love that is going to cause me for a second to lose sight of God. I'm going to be so consumed with the love for my son, I'm going to for a second forget about God. 
And if you forget about God, you're kicked off the chariot. Like, you're no longer a part of the chariot of God. If, you, if you're not ready for a second, regardless of whether or not God will communicate with you at the time, it doesn't matter. To be on the chariot of God, it means that you have to be ready for prophecy regardless of whether or not there will be prophecy or not. So Jacob is worried. Now he's going to revisit his son and have this reunion, and he's going to be so consumed with the love, he is going to be kicked off the train. He is going to lose the status of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob being the chariot of God. So what does he do? He preempts it. He starts saying the Shema. And the Shema is Shema Yisrael Hashem HaKin Hashem HaChad. It's the, it's the clearest declaration of God's dominion, of God's power, of the fact that Hashem Echad, God, is one, one to the exclusion of anything else. The only thing that matters, there's no barriers, right? If you really believe what you're saying with Shema, you're saying there's no barriers for me and God. There's, there's only one. It's all, it's, my focus is only on God. There's nothing else. And by doing that, he is able to stave off the potential degradation of his spiritual readiness for prophecy by his meeting with Joseph. Certainly, Joseph, I'm sure at the time that morning, said the Shema at the correct time. And Jacob said it probably also. But what Jacob is teaching us here, what Jacob is demonstrating here, is the preparation and anticipation of future threats to his spiritual status and preventing it before it happens. And therefore, they meet. Joseph is not part of this chariot of God. Joseph, maybe he was a prophet in his own right. He had the prophetic dreams. He's able to interpret Pharaoh's dreams. Joseph is a prophet in his own in his own right. However, he's not on the level of his father or his grandfather's great-grandfather of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob of being part of the chariot of God. And therefore, even though maybe he had the same experience as his father, the same emotional high of reconnecting with his father, but he wasn't worried about losing any status, or at least the status of being part of the chariot of God. And therefore, he doesn't, he doesn't need to say the Shema. He's not, he doesn't use that as a tool. Whereas Jacob, who is concerned that he's going to lose a certain lofty status of spiritual readiness, he is preempting it with the recitation of the Shema. And I think it's really interesting. The Talmud tells us, that there's four, I mentioned this before, that there's four ways that someone can resist the or can defeat the Yetzir Hara. The Yetzir Hara is a codename for barriers between us and God. That's what it means. It's a codename for barriers between us and God. And it gives us four ways to do it. It says to fight it, to agitate it. It says to study Torah. It says to recite the Shema. And it says to remind him of the day of death. That's a Talmud in the book of Brachos. What we're going to focus on now is the third one. Reciting the Shema. What does that do? That strengthens the bonds that man has with God. And thus, to the exclusion of anything else, which is broadly called the Yitzhahara. And therefore, what do we see? We see Jacob. Jacob is about to encounter his his son, and he recognizes the potential danger to his stature. And what does he do? He says the Shema. I want to tell you one more story just to bring this point home. The Talmud in the book of Brachos, on page, I think it's 61b, it tells the story of Rabbi Akiva. Rabbi Akiva, he lived a very, very remarkable life. 
according to Jewish sources, he died when he was 120 years old, which is a very significant number because Moshe died at 120, and Rabbi Yochanan Metzaki died at 120, and Hillel, the great Hillel, died at 120. So maybe there's some significance to that. But he died a very macabre and grisly death because the Romans, under Hadrian, they went on an assassination campaign against to kill as many rabbis as they could. And he was, according to Jewish sources, he's, he's, his death is either 135 or 136. Now, of course, he's a very interesting life because he starts off his life as being an ignoramus. He doesn't have a, he doesn't have a very, uh, auspicious beginning to his life. But he has this remarkable turnaround at the age of 40 and he commits himself to study Torah and becomes the greatest sage of the, of the generation. But, uh, regardless, Hadrian, the Emperor Hadrian, he makes a anti-Torah campaign in the, about the year 130. And that prompts the Bar Kokhba Rebellion, which was the rebellion that lasted from 132 to 135 under the leadership of Shimon Bar Kokhba. They manage, using guerrilla warfare, they manage to get rid of the Romans to evict the Romans from Israel for a br- brief period. And then Hadrian comes back with, with fierce and barbaric cruelty and he stamps out the rebellion. But as a aspect of this effort to stamp at the rebellion, he makes very severe rules against Torah study and against observance of mitzvahs. And he harnesses his internal Antiochus to try to strangle the Jewish religion. So one of the things he says is no public Torah study. And what does Robert Kiva do? In defiance to the Romans, he convenes all the people, like all the students, and teaches them Torah. And someone comes over to him and says, Rabbi Kiva, don't you know there's signs everywhere? If you teach Torah publicly, you're going to be killed in a horrible, gruesome way. And Rabbi responds, yes, I know that, but what's my options? I have either option to study Torah or to not study Torah. And he gives him a parable. He says, you have a, uh, there was a story of a fish, and the fish is dodging something, and he's, he's going to the edges of the pond. And the fox comes over to the fish and says to the, says to the fish, wait a minute, why are you dodging, and why are you only hanging out the edges of the pond? He says, well, there's a net. The fisherman puts a net in the middle of the pond, and all the fish that get caught in the net, they're all dead. So I'm trying to evade the net. So the fox tells the fish, wait a minute, I'm on dry land and I've looked near and far and there's no nets anywhere. Why don't you come with me? So the, fox, so the fish tells him, you're so supposed to be so clever. You're not so clever at all. You're not the wisest animal. I can only live in the water. So in the place where I can have life, I'm in danger. How much more in danger will I be in the place where I cannot have life on land? Rabbi Kiva tells this person, he says, yes, there's dangers. There's nets there trying to, trying to disrupt us, trying to catch us, trying to kill us. But Torah is our life. So if we have danger here, how much more danger will we be if we jump out of the water? So he tells him. Eventually the Romans catch him and the Romans begin to torture him in a really horrific and barbaric and cruel way. They flay his skin. And all the students are there watching what's happening to him. And Rabbi Kiva starts reciting the Shema. 
And the students say to him, wait a minute, why are you saying Nishma? At this time. And he tells them, every single day of my life, I say the Shema. And the very next sentence is, you should love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your resources. What does it mean with all your soul? It means you have to give up your life for God. And every single day of my life, I was distressed and saddened when I said the Shema. Because I had wanted to give up my life for God. I had hoped and yearned to give up my life for God, but no opportunity came came before me. So every day I was sad. Every day that I couldn't give up my life for God, I couldn't die as a martyr, every day like that was sad. And now, finally, I have the opportunity to give up my life for God. And I'm not going to say the Shema. That's what he tells him. And the story continues that as he reached the last word of the Shema, the word Echad, his soul departed. I want to analyze what happened over here. Every single day when he said the Shema, he was distressed. Why was he distressed? Because he didn't have an opportunity to have someone point a gun in his head. To us, we say, okay, if someone puts a gun to my head and says, repudiate God, that's a really bad situation to be in because I have to give up my life for God. I don't want to do that. That's what that's what we say. Even if people accept the idea that you don't give up your God, that, that you remain committed to God, even if it means giving up your life. Let's assume we accept that idea. Let's assume we accept that. But we hope never we have to make the choice. We hope never to choose in our life for God. If we do, it's terrible. We have to give up our life for God. That's us. What does Rabbi show us? It's to the contrary. Every day that he didn't give up his life for God, he was sad. That was suboptimal. And when did he have that experience? When was he reminded of the fact that he did not have the opportunity to give up his life for God? When he said the Shema. So what does that show us? It shows us someone like Rabbi Akiva, someone like Jacob, when they said the Shema, it wasn't just like they were reading the verse, they were just reciting some sort of six-word axiom that we say as Jews. To them, it really meant something. It really stirred them. It really deepened their bond with God and their love for God to the exclusion of everything else. Therefore, Jacob, he's using it as a tool to clear the way of any inhibitors, of any uh, of any barriers with him and God. And Rabbi Kiva, it has such an evocative result that he says the Shema and he recognizes that all the inhibitors, that God is really one. There's really only one thing that really matters. Nothing else really matters. Everything else is, 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 it, it's just, it, it's just, it's just a distraction. It's just a, that's just a challenge. All the other things seem to be real, even though they're really not. And he says the Shema, and immediately he has a yearning to actualize that belief by giving up his life for God. And therefore, when he said the Shema, it triggered a yearning to give up his life for God because it really worked. He really, when he said Hashem, Hashem is one, he wants a way to do that, and he can't. He can only verbally commit to do it in the next verse. And then finally, he gets the opportunity to do it, and he says the Shema joyously. These two sources, the great Rabbi Kiva and, and Jacob, what they're, what they're really telling us is, is that there's something in this six-word 
statement that we say twice a day that has so much power. It has power to clear the way for anything between us and God. And just to finish up, the Rambam in the third section of Moravuchim of Guide to the Plex on chapter 51, he gives us advice. He says, what's the first step of someone's path to God, someone's growth in their spiritual development? What's the first step you need to do? You have to spend a lot of time thinking about the Shema. And he says, after you do that for many years, you move on, move on to the next step. Many years? My goodness, it's six words. How much How much time can you think about six words? Right? It's only six words. Many years, says the Rambam. What he's telling us is, is that the Shema alone, just saying it and even understanding what it means, that's not really where the hard work lies. The hard work lies is to say, when you say the Shema, and to integrate what that actually means. It means to clear away any barriers between you and God. That's the objective of all of Torah. And it's captured in a six-word statement. That's it. It's captured. But that understanding the statement alone, that, of course, is just the beginning. The real work and the real objective of Torah and really the focus of the Jew is how do I find a way to make this statement true? How do I find a way to actually clear away all the barriers between us and God? And that indeed is the work of many, many years. I think it's an important lesson from the parsha. Very strange reunion. Joseph is crying and he's hugging and he's kissing his father. Jacob is saying the Shema. This is not just what Jacob is really doing here is showing us the power and the opportunity that we have when we say the Shema every day.